0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID 19 crisis and beyond.
1: Today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Scott Becker, who's a partner in the healthcare department at McGuire Woods. He previously served on the board and chaired the healthcare department for over a decade. Scott is the founder and publisher of Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare. He's a Harvard law graduate and certified public accountant. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Rishi, thank you for having me. What a pleasure to get a chance to visit with you, and what a great uh, platform you've developed. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, you know, given all that's happening in the world, I, I just want to start with, how are you doing? How's your family?
0: The family's overall
1: good. We've got
0: a couple kids at college. It's a, it's a mixed whole blended family, so it's more complicated than that. But at least a couple of them, one's at Michigan, one's at Tulane, they're great. The other kids are great too. People seem to be generally pretty healthy. In the big scheme of things, pretty good. That's awesome. For all the people complaining about what cows would look like and so forth, it's still a magnificent place to be with 10 to 30 or 40,000 other kids. And it does seem like now all the health issues, everything else, that most of the kids seem to be pretty pretty okay, seem to be doing okay.
1: So you you have had a very interesting career. You're a Harvard Law graduate and a certified public accountant. How did you get into the healthcare
0: space? How did that even kind of get on your radar? It's a great question. And so I started sort of in healthcare in my mid-20s as a lawyer at a large firm, started working on healthcare-related transactions and deals and so forth. And at that time, like it is today, like it always seems to be, healthcare was so evolving, so many different things going on. and so interesting. And the ability to sort of Build a practice, work with interesting people at this mix of this sort of overlap of regulatory and, and business work and so forth. To me, it was just very fascinating and started to see more and more of it. Had a great mentor who had developed a practice in the healthcare area and sort of started as a lawyer, really developing a healthcare practice. And as part of that, started doing sort of a, a small newsletter and a small conference around healthcare. And it was sort of just really dipping my toes in the water and so forth. And over time, the small conference, the small newsletter became sort of a you know, a very serious sort of platform within healthcare. And we started, I started hiring people to help me sort that out and work with it and, and manage it. And you know, some of the people I hired a long time ago, now 17, 20 years ago, were very young at the point, really coming out of college and ended up just being fortunate and good. In nurturing some magnificent people that became leaders in that company, so we sort of grew together this platform around healthcare and Becker's Healthcare. And then my legal practice was always, you know, overlapped with that. Was always very much focused around the healthcare world, hospitals and health systems, surgeries and surgery chains. And over the last fifteen years or so, we started the conference eighteen years ago about private equity in healthcare, and that ended up obviously sort of being another big area within healthcare. So we've had we've had great fun as we sort of straddled this media career, legal career, and all the the commonality of it was all in healthcare. And so it's given me a front row seat to a lot of fascinating things and, and been a great pleasure to work with just a fascinating group of people. And I'm just curious to dig a little deeper on that. What about
1: healthcare for you at that time? Obviously, now you have this wealth of knowledge. You want, you know it so much better than when you started. But what about it really appealed to you or what kind of
0: intrigued you or piqued your curiosity about it? The reality is, so this goes back 20, I now I guess, I'm, 56 now, I hate to say it, I'm Probably 57 by the time this broadcast, at the time I was 26, 27, 28. So it's literally 30 years ago. And there were a number of different things that drove it. One, I ended up by chance touching on some work that related to healthcare. Two, I was very much interested as a lawyer in building a practice. And there are a couple of different ways that people build practices in law. The traditional ways that try and become the greatest litigator in the world or the greatest corporate specialist in the world and so forth. But at the time, the way in which things were built were not around industry specialties. Me, I was much more interested in having a vertical and in industry specialty where I really knew the area. And once you decide that, and, and there was a reason, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, this is a long story. It won't be as depthful or as an intellectual thing, but I was trying to build a practice. And the last thing I wanted to do was be like the insurance salesperson. That's not negative for the insurance salesperson. I didn't want to be in a spot wherever I was, I was trying to sell to people, trying to develop legal business. I wanted to be in a spot where I could separate my life, As of course, as life has evolved, I've never been able to, but to where I wasn't pitching my brother-in-law for business for insurance. For insurance. I wanted to be in a niche. And so I worked at different niches and up in the healthcare niche. And then I ended up ultimately in niches within the niche, of course, because healthcare is very big. And, and I felt very comfortable even then. You know, people talk about now healthcare is 20% of the economy. Then it was 17% of the economy. It hasn't changed very much in a lot of ways. And I wanted to be in a niche and the niche was big enough where it allowed me to try a lot of things as a lawyer, but also it didn't feel very limiting. It, it is so expansive, so interesting. And as a young person, there were a lot of advantages in it. Like you could, the laws were changing so quickly that the people that were my age that I am now then didn't have this inherent advantage because it was changing so quickly. Whether, and it always changes so quickly that as a young person, you're able to build a reputation in niche relatively quickly over a five, 10-year period where I became seriously known in a couple of areas within healthcare. So it was, it was just really, there were a lot of reasons for it. I wish I could say it was because of like, you know, when people say to me, you're going to join a healthcare department, and I try and dispel them with the notion that you're going to be, you know, that you're actually going to be caring for the ill. You could do great things. You could do great things. But to, to view it as like, oh my God, it was an altruistic thinking process that led me into healthcare. Would be a complete law. It was just a fascinating area for a lot of different reasons, and, and I've loved it. I mean, I've loved it, I find it fascinating. I've grown to have tremendous respect for nurses, leaders, physicians, executives, all the way throughout the ecosystem. And certainly when I started, if I was doing more work on physician leader side, and the period time 30 years ago, the physicians thought the hospital administrators were the devil. And as you evolve and practice, you realize how hard the hospital leadership works too how hard the physicians work, how hard the nurses work, how hard will that support all work? And it's, it's been a fascinating ecosystem to be a part of.
1: Yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm just thinking of like 30 years ago, you're talking about the change in in the market. And right now we're going through this enormous change with COVID and regulations are shifting dramatically. I'm thinking specifically of things like, things like telemedicine and what requirements do you have on certain healthcare professionals or allied health professionals to be able to go on the front lines and, and participate. It definitely seems like there's a parallel there. And I'm curious like what your sensibility is having gone through that 30 years ago and and watched it for 30 years and now you're coming upon this timeframe. Is this for you feeling reminiscent in some way of of what you saw at the beginning?
0: You know, it feels like this obviously has been a very interesting, very disruptive, very change driven year. It is fascinating for me to watch in terms of the huge disruptions. I mean, obviously you see different areas emerge. And and of course, the, the thing that's fascinating about this There are so many areas emerging. So I've always been good at, one of my strengths has always been to, so I'm a Harvard Law graduate, which would people think like, oh my God, he's deeply bright. And I'm fine bright. I'm okay bright. What I was bright at was good at being able to filter through and simplify. And and what I find as you look at the world today, it is so complex and so fast moving and so many different moving parts that that skill of mine is harder to put to work as well as it was 20 years ago. Because it's just, it's just so complex. There's so many different things going on. I can come back and simplify things, but it's harder than it was at one time.
1: That's a very, very interesting insight because I think that more than ever, that skill is needed. And what you're describing is is right. Like when you have so much more data points, the human mind only has a certain capacity for gleaning insights. And and I think that might be why we're seeing big data and AI kind of creep onto the scene so quickly because it's necessary at this point to really fully understand the picture, our human minds often will, will be biased in, in one way or another based on kind of what's closest to us is, is what I imagine. I think that's right. And when
0: you see it, when people don't have data and can't through it, it becomes so politicized because nobody really speaks clearly with one language. And so you have this crazy polarization where each side is right on different things, but neither side can see the other side. They're so built into the positions that are often even though, both sides claim to have data and science, but neither side really does a good job of harnessing it as well as they could. And it's fascinating thing to watch how politicized it becomes. In part, because it's hard for the to really filter through what's true and what's not true.
1: And so, through this very like jungle-like you know environment or this ecosystem that that we're sort of meandering through, one thing that's very striking about you and your professional story is that you, you created you know Becker's Healthcare. You founded Becker's Hospital Review. Becker Group Business News, I could go on Becker Private Equity Podcast, you know the business podcast. So, so what inspires you to kind of
0: create all these, these outlets for your voice and your ideas? Sure. So I, I mean, the Becker's Healthcare situation has been a labor of love for 30 years. It really it, it grew into a serious business, but it was a labor of love and still is a labor of love. And it allows me to sort of connect with people, see what's going on, filter through things, have a voice to an extent, but it really allows me to communicate and talk to a wide range of people and really trying to understand what's going on. I mean, it's really, uh, it's been like a, you know, a magnificent pleasure from, from talking to, you know, just got off the phone with the CIO of the health system to spoke last week to Mike Royson, who's built this whole concept around real age and stuff like that to talking to the CEO of whether it's Northwell health or common spirit to interviewing presidents of the United States for better or for worse at our conferences. And so forth. It's giving me this great platform to deal with a lot of interesting things and just a pleasure. I view myself as as sort of like, you know, in life, as always having a major or two or maybe a dual major. So I I like to focus on both the healthcare side and the business side. I've always liked to focus on the healthcare business side. It's part of like the CPA underpinnings and stuff like that. It allows me, you know, as you, you know, I I talk a little bit about aging because I'm at that spot where I think about those things more. It allows me to stay connected, to stay sharp, to stay thinking. I mean, I write the newsletter, the Beckett newsletters. More to keep myself focused and sharp than for any monetary or business purpose. It keeps me focused, sharp, allows me to connect with people when I enjoy it. It's much like Rishi, the podcasting, and talk to people I find to be a magnificent pleasure. I mean, it just is really, you know, and and some of them are very easy, very short, very simple, some are more complex and longer. But I find it a great way to see what's going on and stay energized and and connect with the world. And, And obviously, in this COVID period, podcasting and that kind of communication has doubled and tripled down and it's been just a it's really been fascinating what are some
1: of the and i know you said that it's become harder and harder to utilize this skill set you have this gift of kind of finding clarity and finding kind of those focus points can you share with me like through covid what are some of the things that you've kind of personally honed in on that you think the mainstream consciousness maybe maybe talks about but not as much as they might want to or need to
0: what are some of those things well, I look at, it. it's a great question, and I look at two or three for different concepts. The first concept I would say is like the United States healthcare system, you know, people underrate the health system in a lot of ways. They take a lot of shots at it. But what they don't realize, once you get past, we have 330 million plus people in our country. Once you get past India and China, which have a billion plus, we're the largest country out there. And it is a big job to take care of 330 million people. It's a big job. So what I see, when people sort of criticize There is a huge amount of greatness in the health system, just a huge amount, and and not easy, lots of challenges. Obviously, we lost more people through COVID than we should have, but a magnificent effort and in a magnificent health care system. So so both greatness and tremendous challenges, both greatness and some inequities. I mean, so so we see some serious inequities. We see, like you know, you know, I know if you're of a certain sort of economic class You can get through to a specialist, the right specialist, even takes connectivity, no matter what class you are, to get through to the right specialist. If you're of a different kind of class, it's very hard. So there's lots of inequities. The other great thing that I see so I see greatnesses and challenges, greatnesses and inequities, you know, the both living in our system. The third thing I will talk about is coverage versus access. We all talk about the fact that under the ACA, we reduce the uninsured from 46 to 29 million or so. It got down to about 10%, 90% of our country still doesn't have, quote, unquote, coverage. And then we still get coverage in certain ways. But the big issue beyond coverage is something I just touched on a second ago is access. So even if we get to coverage, which we should get to, you know, and, and obviously 80% of the new coverage came through Medicaid expansion. God bless. I don't care how it comes. We probably have to get to universal coverage. But even with coverage, we have a huge access problem. So that's, that's the third issue I'll touch on. So greatness and challenges, greatness and inequities. Coverage versus access, which are two very different things. The fourth thing I'll talk about is supply and demand. And this goes to coverage and access to everything else. With 330 million people, we have solved some of our shortages of physicians and nurses over the last decades through immigration. You know, if, if you look at our country, you look at great specialists, you know, half of them are born here, half are not born here. It's been one of the huge gaps we filled through immigration. Whenever you look at our ecosystem. We have this great mix of doctors of different ethnic groups, and it's largely because of a great deal of immigration. We've been able to stay close to the need that we have. We've got now the situation where the big SM medical centers, everybody realizes we need more doctors and nurses. So you've got the situation where you're building more medical schools, but we're way behind in building residency programs to keep up on it. Also at a time, we're making immigration for doctors and nurses tougher, but we have been. So you've got the situation where it's not that we want to make sure we strengthen our medical supply to the detriment of the rest of the world, but it is one of the ways that we've solved the problem over the last several decades is through great people immigrating here. We've got to figure out a way to solve the supply and demand issue. We've got 330 million people. They're aging. Our population is growing, and that's terrific. And we need to make sure that we get closer to the supply of physicians and nurses we need and technology to anywhere near serve that community because we've got coverage and access problems. A lot of technology helps. You talked about earlier, people practicing at the top of their license, regulations that allow people to practice at the top of their license, and that's all helpful. And there there are lots of ways you could leverage people to do a lot more. There's, There's a great project in Africa where they're leveraging people that aren't educated as health professionals to help people with head trauma in other areas and neurosurgeons oversee it, but they're leveraging because they have a horrible shortage of neurosurgeons. And so you need to figure out a way here, you know, so to look at four or five different big issues, coverage versus access, supply and demand. Just We are we are just woefully short, no longer enough medical school, not medical schools, but residency programs of ways to strengthen our healthcare profession and support doctors and nurses and, and others that go with that. Greatness, there's still tremendous greatness. In this. System. people underage, factor, we're serving 330 million people in a pretty competent way, maybe in a B plus way, obviously an A plus way in certain places. I see in other places, and then greatness in inequities. And that goes to the access issues too. In our less fortunate communities, the access is just a mess. And I see big efforts being made now by certain leaders trying to fix that. And I'm inspired by those, but it's challenging. We see with the vaccine efforts, you see lots of inequities, and just you see other leaders trying to be vaccines to communities, and that's just a necessity. It's obvious, it's clear. You see people doing mass vaccine events. You see people doing mobile vans to vaccinate. So those are gonna have what you need to, to bring healthcare to communities where it's very needed.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And, and your point about coverage versus access is a really interesting one because I think that often gets missed in the general conversation. So I'm just gonna kind of repeat back what I'm thinking. And then I'd like you to just correct me if if I didn't say it quite the way that you intended. So you're saying that with coverage, you might have someone paying for you to get whatever you need, but you still need to have access to the clinical facility, to the clinician, to the vaccine, to the medication itself. And that's just woefully short in a lot of communities. So even if you have a payer ready to pay, the thing isn't
0: there to be paid for. Is that what you're getting at or is it something different? That's exactly right. What we have is coverage. Is a very easy issue politically to argue about because it seems like a black and white issue. The much harder issue to solve is access and coverage. We we have to solve. I mean, Republicans will say, well, everybody's got coverage one way or another. Democrats will say, universal coverage, Medicare for all. And you could argue over those two things. Coverage has to be solved. I agree with both sides. Coverage has to be solved. I sort of try to be nonpartisan. I disagree with the Republican side that the market will take care of itself. I don't agree with that. If Medicare is only 14% of our country right now, I disagree with the concept that Medicare for all is also the easiest way to get there. I think quite frankly, President Biden, I think, the political one or the other, is probably closer in his views of moving towards incrementally increased coverage and incrementally a public option, which are very popular, whether you're red or blue, whether you're white or black. These ideas of public option are incredibly popular, as is you know, incrementally moving to 65 to 64, 63, whatever the ages are. To increase the Medicare program and start to to fill some of these gaps and do so in a way that doesn't upset the entire universe we have, because we have a great system, but we got to make sure that it's it's great for everybody. Coverage is one part of it, access is a huge another issue. Have you seen creative
1: solutions to the access part of it that you think could scale well? I mean, you talked about kind of mobile clinics and vaccination days and things like that. But like, have you seen solutions that you're like, gosh, if if only more people knew about this, or if only I could have the ear of the of the commander in chief and say, like, this is what you got to scale up for the access part, what what would that be?
0: I don't have perfect solutions. My solutions are are simple. You know, it's India, for example, people come out of high school, into medical school, into medical programs. So they're able to admit to a lot more doctors as an example. And so forth. And so for like we have to find a way. Right now we've made becoming a doctor in this country, far harder than it should be. So, so people don't get out of residency, they don't get out of specialty training until they're in their early 30s. And that just does it in a world of sort of a immediate gratification, even though we've got enough people applying to medical school. So we still do, but we need more. We need more doctors, we need more specialists, but we need more primary care as well. We need both, but you, you have gaps in both that are big, big gaps. I mean, there's certain things that are easier to leverage up on and certain primary care is easier with some of these techniques and tools and people and some of the specialties. It's easy for people to bash specialists until you need a specialist. So, so I I really think you need both. You need you need a lot of both, particularly with a large population and the aging population. So I, I think there's not, you know, technology is part of the solution. And certainly moving so much to telehealth has helped a great deal. It helps people access and they couldn't otherwise access. But at the end of the day, you have horrible shortages of psychiatrists in places. You have horrible shortages of specialists in places. And you could tell health all you want. But at the same point, you need a highly trained person to help. And you need brain surgery. You might think there's enough specialists until your relative needs brain surgery.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point about the need for specialists as well as primary care folks. And, and that telemedicine wouldn't actually address that. I'm curious, given, given what you just said, what are some of the most exciting things for you, like for Becker's Healthcare, like for the next three to five years? I don't want to look beyond that. But what are some of the things that you're most personally excited about that you're working with or working towards?
0: Yeah, no, I think the, the, the most interesting thing that I see is, I mean, we live in the world of covering what's going on in the healthcare community, staying connected to the health community, seeing what's going on. We view it as the core of us is staying very close hospital hospitals and health systems, health IT, physicians, and so forth. And just watching the trends and so forth and making sure that we stay in the center of it and connecting people and helping them see what's going on and get a quick sense of what's going what's happening. We're far more observers and commentators than we are actors. And our goal is to always understand that that's our role. You know, our goal is to amplify voices of those that are leading. And so the things that I find fascinating, I mean, when you talk about things that I find fascinating, I and mean, then there are different things that other people that find fascinating. I find fascinating the emergence of nurses as CEOs, some of the great CEOs in the country, you know, whether it's Janice Spiso at UCLA, whether it's Nancy Asia, I find that fascinating. I find fascinating the emergence of black African-American leaders as some of the best CEOs in our country, you know, whether it's Gene Woods at Atrium HM Health, Lloyd Dean in Common Spirit, you just don't, you don't have a lot of that in other industries. And I see sort of, there's there's a, a greatness in American health here and a democratization of it that's happening and not a political democracy, there's an emerging view that it has to work for everybody. And, and, and I think part of it is the things that I get excited about are watching those kinds of leaders amplify their import and their impact
1: on our communities. That's a really interesting point and, and a very nuanced point around kind of this growing consensus of inclusivity, diversity, equity. I, I'm curious, whenever you have individuals making a difference, if there are enough of those individuals and they're interacting with each other, then you get kind of interesting emergent properties. And all of a sudden you start seeing kind of a shift in the overall landscape. Have you seen any of that as well? Like granted, their organization may be doing stellar work as an organization. Have you seen any sort of mainstream shift in how people are thinking
0: as a result of that as well? You know, I think it's a great question. And I'm I'm not sure. I I do think there is a, wider footprint of belief that we got to figure out coverage for everybody one way or another. I, I think there's a wider consensus around that. There's certainly a wider consensus that whether you're right or left, you kind of like this public option idea at some point, as long as it's not, as long as it, it doesn't cost so much money or doesn't cause so many troubles. But if done right, it's kind of a good idea. In terms of leadership, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the great concern that you have in the healthcare community is the burnout and the resilience or lack of resilience post the pandemic. You know, you have already got an aging workforce terms of physicians and doctors. You, you know, some of these leaders I talk about are also middle aged, middle aged to 60, what have you. And so, you know, so I mean, do you have enough leaders, a groundswell of great leaders coming on? We see more and more of them, you know, and, and more and more people in it. And then, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out the mix of not for profit healthcare is such a cornerstone of our country and how it's handled and so important. And then the mix of that with the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and technology and trying to hit this right balance between all these things when they complement each other. I mean not for profit healthcare, whether the Northwell Health, the Common Spirits, the Atriums, and so many other great systems, through this COVID-19 period, have proven again how much we rely on them and how important that is to our ecosystem.
1: Yeah, that that's definitely true. I think that it's easy to ignore major players when everything is going right. And the moment something is not going right, you quickly realize how, like you said, reliant we are on these systems.
0: What you've also seen come out of this COVID period is this, this concept of too big to fail. Because because we've also seen how reliant are we on these huge systems when there's a problem. Unfortunately, there's a huge problem a critical access hospital gets overwhelmed in two seconds. And they're very important parts of our ecosystem. But it's these big systems that are there to handle thousands of COVID-19 patients or a big problem that you, you realize that you really do have a situation of too big to fail and, and how that will develop and, and, and work through the system as well. It's fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah. No, I'm glad you said that because, you know, we go and <laughs> it's easy to think about too big to fail in the context of a car manufacturer. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, now 12, 13 years ago. <laughs> and at that time, we we had that discussion. And now with the healthcare system being too, too big to fail or certain health operators, the stakes are higher. It's not just about dollars and unemployment in the economy, which are major stakes, but also about direct effect on lives. And in that context, I mean, you absolutely can't see those systems fail because there are major consequences.
0: There was a huge movement towards reducing the beds in America, reducing bed capacity, just in time, inventory all those kinds of things. We found that you have to be so careful in how far you go with those things For when there's a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I guess one thing I'd like to close on then is what do you say to to young people coming up? I mean, you've had, I think I'm putting it mildly by saying a stellar career, uh, just a wonderful, eclectic group of interests that you've webbed into something that's just absolutely beautiful. And your background is so interesting as well. What would you say to someone that's coming out of in your case, law school or let's say a young accountant or a young healthcare professional as they get under the landscape of, of COVID and
0: start charting their own path? Sure. So I think you hit it right there. So I just gave a talk on sort of 15 points on having a great career to group. I've had a pleasure of a career, but I start with three sort of core points and and, I, and it goes to charting your own path. The first and most important point is ultimately, whatever your goals are, they have to be your goals and your plans. And I, and I think Is I've watched, you've probably watched young physicians, I watch young lawyers and young business people. The biggest determinant of happiness in a career is are you largely charting your own goals or somebody else charting them for you? And I think that's the starting point. And your goal could be I want to be working as a doctor under this person. I want to be the best specialist in the world in this. I want to be a primary care physician that oversees huge amounts of change in health equity. Whatever your goals are, they don't have to be big goals. They don't have to be small goals. They have to be your goals. Is the number one determinant, I believe, of happiness in a career or not. If you're if you're just working for somebody else, in their direction, unless that's what you've chosen to do, that, that I'm there because I want a job. I just want to do that. That's fine. But if but unless you've chosen that, the most the biggest import is picking your own path, starting your own course. The, the next two pieces of advice that I, I talk about with people are you have to do two other big things. You have to be productive whatever you do. Whatever you do, you've got to make the effort to be good at it, to make a contribution, to be productive, to be to be useful, to be valuable. And the second part of it is, you have to be able to play nice in the sandbox. You have to be, you have to ultimately be, in the old days, there was this great adage, would you rather be liked or respected? And I always thought the better answer was, I'd rather be respected than liked. But the reality is, in today's world, today's career, i have a long-term career, you got to figure out a way to do both. To be, and you don't have to be the nicest person in the world. You don't speak the greatest personal skills, but you have to learn to play nice in the sandbox. So, if you want to, like I've been at the law firm for thirty years, an incredible achievement. It's impossible to be a single law firm for thirty years. But the only two things I'll attribute it to are being productive and playing relatively nice in the sandbox, not perfectly, but relatively nice. So, I look at three things: charting your own path, which you sort of started with, and then being productive, and then playing nice in the sandbox. And of course, there's a whole, you just said a podcast on, you know, 12 or 15 thoughts of speech and the podcast of 12 thoughts and having a great career. It still needs some refinements and some work, but it goes to this point of, you know, how do you make this a career that you that you enjoy and you thrive in? And there's so many other points to it, but I start with those three.
1: That's a fantastic point. And, and I think when when I heard that dichotomy of respected or, or liked, I also was like, oh, respected is, is the right one. But the more I'm thinking about it just right now, it's clear that to become liked, it unpacks a ton of soft skills, communication skills, compassion, empathy, being able to kind of not always try to try to see it as a win win, but, but see it as an infinite game. You know, all these kinds of ideas kind of swell up, and so I quickly recognize where that comes from and, and how that's that's
0: right. That that makes a lot of sense. So you hit it again, Ryan. Right? I mean, you're absolutely a brilliant person, but you see this concept of like life is not a zero sum game. You know, it, it's not if we give that community health care, it's going to take away from us. We have to view it very differently. We have to view it as how do we, I mean, and I view it very much. So I'm a very big proponent that we have to increase supply, make it easier to become doctors, easier to become nurses. We need to increase supply of doctors and nurses so that it doesn't become a zero sum game. Because if we don't have doctors and nurses, it very much does. It, it's wealthier communities get coverage, others don't, and it's a, it's a disaster. And we have to make it so there's enough supply, so there's enough access for everybody. But I love your point on it. It's not a zero-sum game. It can't be. If it is, this is where you get the politicians wanting to kill each other and all focused on coverage when the real issue is access. Yeah,
1: that's that's a fantastic point. And I like that reframing. So thanks for sharing that with me. And also thank you, Scott, for joining the show today. That was a wonderful way to end. And I really, really
0: enjoyed the the wisdom that you just dropped. Thank you. Rishi, thank you very much. What a pleasure to visit with you and what you're doing. Fantastic.
1: Great. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information
0: on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.